this case gets no introduction because I don't even know where to start. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines, or welcome back, if this isn't your first time listening. I want to give a big thank you to everyone who participated in my True Crime Headlines live stream last Thursday, where I covered the cases of Vanessa Guillen and Alinda Stoltzfus. I think it was a success. I'll leave a link in the show notes where you can watch the live stream for free. But the audio-only version that's cleaned up a little bit, I took out some of my ums, I deleted the section where I drank water. That audio-only, slightly cleaned-up version is available to Patreon and Himalaya Plus members. So if you're interested in that, you can go support me on either of those platforms. There will be a new live stream this Thursday at 8, 7 central. And I'll also leave a link to that in the show notes. I haven't picked which cases I'm covering yet. I do have one headline I've been seeing a lot lately that I will probably cover, but I'm not sure what the other ones are. So feel free to send me suggestions of recent cases you're following, and I can see if I can get them organized in time for the live stream. Today's case, though, takes place in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, so I want to give a shout out to Stephanie from the Keystone State of Mind podcast. If you're interested in hearing more stories from Pennsylvania, from true crime to urban legends to history, I recommend checking out Keystone State of Mind. What we're talking about today is not a story they've covered over on Keystone State of Mind, and it is one that is a little less clear on the details because we have multiple people giving their versions of events. As always, I and my researcher Jess, who helped with this one, did our best to get the most accurate and most likely version of events. We used 40-some-odd articles, websites, and documents to put this episode together, but a lot of those came from the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News, so I definitely wanted to mention them at the top. My full list of sources is always on my website at basementfortproductions.com. I am a little behind on updating the website more accurately sending the info to my web guy to update, my web guy being my husband. But by the end of the month, we should be caught up. Our case starts with the birth of Deli Marvera, who was born at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia on December 5th, 1997. Her mother, 25-year-old Luz Cuevas, already had two sons who were four and five years old, so she was over the moon to have a little girl. Delimar's father, Pedro, was 33-ish and was not listed on the birth certificate, even though he and Luce were living together when the baby was born. There are a couple reasons given 
for this. One was that he doubted the paternity of the baby, but the reason Pedro gave was that he didn't sign it because he wasn't clear on what they were asking him to do. In fairness to him, there was a language barrier here, with Luis and Pedro both primarily speaking Spanish while living in an English-speaking city, so it's possible. Whether or not he was on the birth certificate seems more like a family issue, but you know me, I would not be bringing it up if it wasn't relevant, so just remember this for later. Like I said, the couple was living together. They were in the Frankfurt neighborhood of Philadelphia. They lived in a two-story row house, and this is an impoverished area of the city. Pedro worked occasionally as a mechanic and sometimes stocking shelves at stores like the local Dollar Tree. On the evening of December 15th, 1997, Delimar was only 10 days old and Luz was home with the three kids. The baby was upstairs sleeping. Luz had put her down on the bed for a nap, but one of Pedro's relatives by marriage had been over that day and went upstairs. She decided to move the baby into the crib, worried the baby might fall off the bed. Ten-day-old babies don't tend to roll around that much, but some people are just more nervous about this sort of thing than others. Luz then checked on Delibar, and she was asleep in the crib. She went back downstairs, and now we have the first split between the stories told. Luz said it was around 6 in the evening, maybe a bit after, and she was sitting on the couch chatting with one of Pedro's step-cousins, Carolyn. This was the same cousin who moved the baby from the bed to the crib earlier. She was hanging out that day. Suddenly, they heard a loud pop from upstairs. Luz ran up there and saw that there was a fire and the flames were coming from the front bedroom where Delimar's crib was. Luz claimed she ran to Delimar's crib, but the baby wasn't in there. Confused and panicky, Luz went back to the bed that Delimar had been sleeping on. She wasn't there. She just went through that whole small upstairs looking for the baby, but she couldn't find her anywhere. She tried to get back into that front bedroom where the crib was to check again, because surely Delimar had to have been in the crib. But the fire was far too intense at this point, and it drove her back. She just had to flee, and she made it outside with her two other boys. The other story of how this happened comes from a neighbor who was a witness. In this version, the three children were home in the care of their grandmother. Luce was not home, with one person saying that she was out looking for work or at some type of job interview. The neighbors all came rushing over when they saw the fire. 
they had just those little home fire extinguishers and garden hoses, and they started trying to put out the fire. Someone yelled that the baby's room was on fire. So one of the neighbors ran into the house and tried to get up the stairs. He could hear the baby crying, but the smoke was too thick. He just couldn't breathe. He was forced to back out. Another neighbor climbed up on the porch roof and sprayed his hose directly into the open bedroom window. He hoped it would push back the flames enough that he could then get in and get to the baby, but it did absolutely nothing. Yet he stayed up there as long as he could stand it, just spraying his hose into the room because it was the only thing he could do. According to this neighbor who was on the porch roof, Luce arrived at the scene roughly around the time the fire department did. She got out of a car and ran up to the house. When she found out Delimar hadn't made it out, Luce ran into the burning house. The neighbors had tried to stop her, but she went in anyway. The flames pushed her back, just like they had everyone else, and when she came out of the house, she had burns on her face and her ears. She was crying, my baby, my baby. Pedro was not home when the fire broke out, but his step-cousin Carolyn, the one who was visiting Luce, drove to where he was hanging out and told him there was a fire, and that Delimar had not been saved. Carolyn then drove Pedro back to the house. When they arrived, Pedro got out of the car. He was also yelling about his daughter. At this point, the fire was nearly under control, and Luce was sitting in an ambulance being treated for her burns. Obviously, Luce was also in great emotional distress. She's talking about the baby. And here we're going to have two stories again. A firefighter who spoke Spanish talked to Luz and she told him that Delimar was not in her crib. She said he kind of brushed her off, saying that she was in shock and in denial because the baby was in the house. A neighbor had heard the baby crying. There really was no other explanation for where she could be. The fire marshal at the scene has a different story. He said they had Luce give her statement three times, and never once did she say the baby was not in the house. She actually insisted the opposite, that she had left her baby safely sleeping in the crib. Luce was then transported to Temple University Hospital, the same one where Delimar had been born for treatment. She was treated, obviously, for the burns and her emotional distress. I'm not an expert, but maybe they could have brought her to a different hospital rather than the one where the baby had been born. I mean, let's try to mitigate trauma. Anyway, the fire inspector came in and determined the fire had originated in Delimar's room since it was by far the most damaged room in the house. 
the cause of the fire was ruled to be a bad extension cord that Pedro had rigged up to a space heater. Extension cords, particularly a homemade one like this, and space heaters are individually fire hazards. And here we have them together. The initial search of the room uncovered what they thought was Delimar's remains, but it ended up just being some debris and a portion of the melted mattress that had sort of bonded together as it cooled. There were two more searches of the house in the hopes of finding Delimar's body, but they couldn't find anything. However, newborns are small. They have a lot of flexible cartilage rather than all hard bones. So the idea the baby was completely incinerated was an awful one, to be sure, but it wasn't out of the question, and it is what was eventually determined to have happened. Without any remains found, Luce ended up plagued with doubt. Was Delimar actually in the house? And this is a scenario we saw with the Sodder family case. If you are not familiar with the Sodder children, you really need to spend more time on the internet reading list-style articles about Unsolved Mysteries because their case always finds a spot on those lists. In 1945 in West Virginia, the Sodder family home was destroyed by fire. At the time, the house was occupied by the mother, father, and nine of their ten children. Only the parents and four children escaped the fire. It was presumed the other five children had died. Except after the fire, no bodies were found. And these weren't newborns like Delimar. They were between the ages of 5 and 14. Because no bodies were found, the family believed the children had survived the fire and likely had been kidnapped. It's an intriguing mystery that you should definitely look up. I have moved away from doing those historic unsolved cases like we did on Insight, but if I ever feel nostalgic, the Sodder children would definitely be the case I would cover. And much like Mr. and Mrs. Sodder, Luce refused to believe Delimar died in the fire. And without a body, the medical examiner would not issue a death certificate. He told the family they would have to go to court to have Delimar declared dead. And Luce wouldn't do this. While the court process can be difficult for people who don't speak the language, it's pretty obvious she didn't do this because she refused to believe her daughter was dead. In 1999, Luce and Pedro had another child together, a son. But Luce was still struggling with coming to terms over the loss of her daughter. She asked Pedro for money to hire a private investigator to determine if the fire really could have completely destroyed all traces of Delimar's body, or if it was possible she was out there somewhere. Pedro told her he didn't have the money. Luz consulted an attorney 
but his fee was $100 an hour, which she also couldn't afford. Three years after the fire, Luce was still not coping well. Not that this is something you ever get over. You do try to heal the parts of you that you can heal. Luce wasn't able to do this, so she went to a therapist to talk through it. But all she really talked about was that she thought Delimar may have been kidnapped from the house before the fire. Even in seeking help, she couldn't let this go. Pedro and Luce's relationship strained over the years for a number of reasons, and the couple split up in 2002. In January 2003, Luce was invited to a family birthday party for Pedro's niece's daughter, who was turning three and was close in age with Luce's youngest son. Another guest at the party was Carolyn Correa, the cousin by marriage of Pedro's that was at the house the night of the fire. Carolyn's mother had married Pedro's uncle. That's how they are related, and over the years, Carolyn had become very close to Pedro's family. Pedro had seen Carolyn a few times over the years, but Luce either had not seen her or only in passing. Pedro's sister introduced Luce to Carolyn's daughter, whose name was Alia. Luce realized the most obvious thing about Carolyn's little daughter, and that's that she looked a lot like her and her sons. It's a startling resemblance between Alia and Luce. So Luce struck up a conversation with Carolyn, asking about her daughter, and Carolyn responded that she had the baby around the same time Delimar was born, the baby's father had died of an overdose years ago, and she was raising her with her new husband, Brian. So this information sent Luce reeling. In her belief that her baby had been kidnapped, she spent five years thinking about who could have done it, and she kept going back to Carolyn. She was the only one Luce knew was at the house that night, other than Pedro's mother, and Grandma certainly didn't have a baby stashed somewhere. According to Luce and Pedro, Carolyn had been at the house that night so Pedro could do some work on her car. She ended up bringing him over to another relative or friend's house, but then remembered she had left her purse at Luce's house. According to Luce, they ended up chatting for a little bit, and then the fire started. Now, we do have those other witnesses who said Luce wasn't at the house that night, but regardless, Carolyn had gone back to the house at some point and we know that because she knew there was a fire. She's the one who drove to get Pedro and tell him about it. Pedro said she was gone for about an hour and a half from the time she left to get her purse until she came back and told him about the fire. Had Carolyn spent that hour and a half going to the house, getting the baby out of the house, starting a fire to cover it up, and then 
stashing the baby somewhere? That's what Luce is wondering. In 2000, when she was seeing that therapist, she named Carolyn in one of her sessions. She talked about her suspicion. And now here Carolyn is with a child the same age who has the same dimples, dark hair, and smile as Luce. One person at that party said Luce fled from it in tears. What they didn't know at the time was that before she left, Luce pretended that Aaliyah had gum stuck in her hair and she was helping remove it. She took a few strands of hair, having seen a TV show about how they can use hair to test for DNA. But Luce was a single mother who didn't have the money to do a private DNA test, and frankly, she probably wasn't even sure how you would go about having it done. And then what if she went to the police to have them do it, and she was wrong? I'm sure she was doubting herself and second-guessing herself after she spent five years of having people tell her, no, your baby died, you need to come to terms with it. It took about a year before Luce figured out what to do, and what she did was go to her state representative. Pretty much all of the early reporting said that Luce took the hairs at a birthday party in 2004, just a month before she went to her state rep. But she wasn't at the party that year. That has been confirmed by a number of witnesses, so it was definitely from the year before. It's not that the newspapers misreported this, but rather this was communicated by Luce that it had just happened when it had actually been a year. Regardless of how long she held on to those hairs, Luce went to Representative Angel Cruz with her concerns. She asked him for help in figuring out what to do next. Cruz admitted he was skeptical because who wouldn't be? This story absolutely Sounds like a mother who just cannot accept the loss of her child. But there was something about Luce and about how she told the story that made him feel like there might be something to it. Cruz got in touch with someone at the DA's office who then asked the police to look into it. In early February 2004, the police took a full statement from Luce and they reached out to Carolyn. They asked Carolyn if she could provide a photograph of Aaliyah, and Carolyn complied. She was more than happy to help, and she gave them a photograph of another child, one who didn't look exactly like Luce. Later in the month, when they got the order for DNA, the state said that Carolyn sprayed something in Aaliyah's mouth, and then told her not to swallow it. No one knows what it was, but the implication here is that Carolyn thought it would interfere with the DNA test. But it didn't. Swabs from Luce, Carolyn, and Alia were all on their way to the lab. There may have been some worry that Carolyn was going to run with the child because Alia was taken into foster care while they waited on the results. When Alia was taken from Carolyn, Carolyn told her, this is the last time you're going to see mommy. You're not going to see mommy 
anymore. Obviously, this was the absolute worst thing she could have said. It deeply upset and hurt and scared this little six-year-old girl, and she was inconsolable. Carolyn was not about to leave this investigation in the hands of the police. She decided to have her own independent DNA analysis run because she was sure the results would show that this was her daughter. She spent over $600 on the tests. Before Carolyn's results came back, the official ones did and proved that Carolyn had just wasted her money. Alia was, in fact, Delimar. So surprise, I'm telling you a story that has a relatively happy ending, a first for Crime Lines. Of course, it wasn't happy for everyone. A warrant was put out for Carolyn's arrest. She was charged with kidnapping, arson, burglary, conspiracy, concealing the whereabouts of a child, unlawful restraint, and false imprisonment. But when authorities showed up to arrest her, they couldn't find her. However, the media soon began covering this sensational and just unbelievable story on March 2nd. They ran descriptions of Carolyn and her vehicle. Likely due to that publicity, she decided to turn herself in. Her bond was set at $1 million, which she couldn't pay. On the family court side of things, plans were being made to reunite Delimar with her family. Of course, this was nothing but joy for Luce and something incredibly confusing and traumatizing for Delimar. She was taken from the only mother and stepfather she knew, the people who raised her, the people she believed were her brothers and her sister. So working with the social workers and a child psychologist, it was determined that Delimar would slowly be reintroduced into the family. They would start with supervised visits, encouraging Luce to ease into the emotional side of things. Eventually, Luce and Pedro were given joint legal custody, with Luce having primary physical custody and Pedro having visitation rights. After the hearing to determine this plan of action in early March, which was just a couple of days after Carolyn's arrest, it was time for Luce and Pedro to see Delimar and spend a little bit of time with her. They went into the room where they were doing this visit, and Delimar ducked under a table. Then she popped out, yelled surprise, and then just collapsed laughing. This scene sounds like it was written for a movie. And Delimar was going to still have a long road ahead of her. It wasn't going to be easy to heal from this trauma, but when she jumped out and yelled surprise, which of course, she was the surprise of a lifetime, it was a moment that broke the tension, even if just for a little bit. A few days after this, Delimar was brought to Luce's sister's house for an extended visit with the family. 
in spite of the media being told to stay away and give them space, they were camped outside the house trying to get a picture of the little girl. Luce had a lot of media interest in the story, obviously. Eventually, she sold the rights to Lifetime and then used the money to buy a house. Lifetime then made a movie called Little Girl Lost, one of their many based-on-a-true-story movies. You can find it on YouTube now if Lifetime movies are your thing. So Delimar is transitioning back to her family, and she was able to visit even with her stepfather, Brian, for a little bit. She was able to visit the house to get her things, just little steps to help her transition. By early April, she was starting to get acclimated to this new life and began attending her new school. So what in the world would possess someone to take a relative's baby, possibly start a fire to cover it up, and then think she could raise the baby undetected just a few miles away? To possibly understand this, let's talk a little bit about who Carolyn Correa was. Carolyn had married a man named Anthony. They stayed married for about 10 years and had three children together. In 1990, when their youngest child was born, Carolyn had her tubes tied. By 1996, the two were divorced and Carolyn was working as a billing clerk in a medical office. She used her position and access to steal checks. Carolyn then caught wind that the company was interviewing people for her position, and she was anticipating that she was about to get fired. Now, the company was not onto her check scheme at this point. They were looking to fire her, that's for sure, but it was because she was a no-show too many times. After this, in November 1996, Carolyn was arrested on suspicion that she started a fire at the office. The motive may have been to retaliate against the company because she found out they planned on firing her, but it also could have been to cover up her theft that surely the replacement person would find out about when they took over. There were no patients present at the time of the fire, but her co-workers were there. Because people were present, Carolyn was charged with aggravated arson. They also tacked on theft and fraud charges for the stolen checks. Carolyn managed to bail out And while that court case was still being resolved in 1997, Carolyn became, according to her, unexpectedly pregnant. She didn't tell many people, but she did tell her boyfriend, Andre Moore, that they were going to become parents. Andre was excited. He went out. He stocked up on diapers. He got a crib set up in his house. He did all the things you do to prepare for a baby. On December 15, 1997, the day of the fire, 35-year-old Carolyn showed up at his house with the baby. Andre's mother and sister were there, eager to meet the baby as well. 
Carolyn told Andre that she had a home birth and her friend had been there to assist her. Then Carolyn suggested that Andre keep the baby overnight so that he would have some time to bond with her, which he eagerly agreed to. Carolyn left, but came back sometime later. The baby was a surprise to Carolyn's family. Some didn't know she was pregnant, and then others were pretty sure they remembered that she had her tubes tied after the birth of her third child. Then in January 1998, when the baby was about three weeks old, Carolyn and Andre filed for the birth certificate. As far as the arson case with the medical office, Carolyn managed to plead out on a third-degree arson charge and got five years probation plus community service. Her plea and sentence were pretty light, considering she had been accused of setting a fire while her co-workers were in a building. And some think this leniency was because Carolyn appeared to be pregnant at the time of her sentencing, but she was not. In the meantime, Andre and Carolyn split up, and in 1999, they had a bit of a custody battle. Carolyn was refusing to let Andre see the baby, and he requested a paternity test. They weren't married when the baby was born. He didn't file an affidavit of paternity, so to establish standing, he had to get the test done. Of course, when the results came back, it showed that he was not the father. He then had no standing in court, and he lost all access to this child he thought was his for a year and a half or so. The same year as the custody battle, Carolyn began dating Brian Busardo, a truck driver who she would later marry. Carolyn ended up having some more legal trouble in the early 2000s. She had been receiving welfare benefits but had gone back to work. She didn't declare the income, so she was basically double-dipping. This was not the first time she had been suspected or investigated for this type of welfare fraud. Outside of these things, most people saw Carolyn as a very kind and generous and giving person. They saw her as an ideal mother. She doted on her children. She sent them to private school. And she started getting Alia into modeling. She found a talent agent for her who got her a TV spot on an episode of Blue's Clues. Luce would claim that Carolyn was actually abusive physically and mentally to Delimar, but that has not been established. During this time that Carolyn was raising Delimar, Luce said she didn't see Carolyn at all though Carolyn said she did, and we're going to get to why that matters in a minute. Pedro did see Carolyn at family events, though. According to Carolyn, it was several times. Family said it was a couple times. And Pedro makes it sound like it was one time, around the year 2000, when his niece was having a baby shower. Carolyn and Aaliyah were leaving the house when he got there, so Carolyn just 
quickly introduced the toddler as her daughter and left. After this encounter and seeing this little girl, Pedro started to wonder if maybe Luce wasn't so far off base with her suspicions. He even told a coworker at the Dollar Tree about the situation and that someone close to his family had actually kidnapped his daughter. He believed the fire was a cover-up. But Pedro admitted he did not go to the authorities or even confront Carolyn. I'm sure his defense to this would be similar to what I assume Luce was thinking. How ridiculous does this story sound? And how unhinged would they seem if they were wrong? Suspicions weren't proof. DNA is proof, and that's what ended up proving that the family was not unhinged or in denial. After Carolyn's arrest, her ex-husband came to her defense, saying that he saw her with Delimar when he picked his kids up for the weekend visits. He saw a loving mom, and he just could not believe that she had kidnapped anyone. There were some family members who admitted that they suspected that Delimar and Alia were one and the same, especially as the little girl grew and looked like her biological brothers. One cousin said the family members who suspected something felt caught in the middle. At least one person did mention it to Pedro that this little girl looked like his children, and he didn't do anything or say anything. Reading between the lines, it sounds like they thought this may have been an arrangement where Pedro and or Luce had given the baby to Carolyn. And along these lines, there were two people who claimed they saw Carolyn with the baby before the fire. One was Andre, saying Carolyn came over in the afternoon with the baby, not at night. He later said he may have been misremembering, and it was probably actually the evening time. He was being asked about this six years down the road, so it's very understandable that his memory isn't crisp. Carolyn's daughter Angelica was the other person who said she saw the baby before the fire, and she said it was a full day before. She would have been 10 or 11 at the time, and like I said, this was six years before, but she did have a reason to remember the timing. Angelica said she was away for the weekend visiting her dad. She was gone when Carolyn claimed she gave birth to the baby at home on Friday, December 12th. When Angelica came back from the visit on Sunday, December 14th, the baby was at the house. And that leads to one early theory for Carolyn's defenders. There were two babies, one died in the fire, but somehow they had been switched. Carolyn told a friend who visited her during her pretrial detention that she took her baby over to Luce and Pedro's house on the 15th. She started having some postpartum pain, so Luce gave her a pain pill to help her out, except the pain pill made her very tired and dizzy. So she and Pedro took her baby over to a friend's house 
leaving her there until midnight, which was after the fire. It seems the belief was that while Carolyn was under the influence of whatever Luce had given her, she either took the wrong baby or was given the wrong baby. She left with Delimar while the real Alia was the one who died in the fire. Pedro and Luz said Carolyn absolutely did not have a baby with her when she came over. But Pedro, who had been in her car, did see a car seat in her back seat, but there was no baby. We can also prove that Carolyn's version is not true. If Carolyn had a baby with her on December 15th, who was just a few days old, she would have been pregnant on December 3rd, and we know she wasn't because on December 3rd, Carolyn went to the doctor. She claimed she had pains in her side, and when they asked her if she could be pregnant, she said yes and said she even had a positive pregnancy test. The doctor's office ordered an ultrasound, and it showed that Carolyn was not pregnant on December 3rd, and showed no signs of having recently been pregnant. Obviously, she couldn't have given birth less than two weeks later. I think this is a case of when you love someone and they do something very out of character, you try to make it make sense. But the evidence does not support this. Regardless of what stories Carolyn is telling people, Delimar was not her baby. Carolyn's official defense, as in the one her lawyers were coming up with, was to consider an insanity defense. After all, she paid for her own set of DNA tests. Why would she do this if she didn't think this was her baby? When she learned that Delimar was not her daughter, she was hysterically asking where her daughter was. She started having hallucinations about Delimar and began self-harming, ending up being put on suicide watch. They were going to argue that Carolyn suffered from pseudosiasis, which is the belief you are pregnant when you are not. The cause of the condition is not known, largely because it's so rare that there just aren't enough people to study. But because many people end up having a full range of pregnancy symptoms, including physical ones, like they stop menstruating, it's believed it may be a feedback loop between the mind and the body. It would originate in the mind, where the person believes they are pregnant or so desperately wants to be. That sends signals to the body to produce more estrogen and prolactin, which then cause physical symptoms of pregnancy. Those physical symptoms further convince the person they are actually pregnant. From the time of her tubal ligation in 1990 to her arrest in 2004, Carolyn had five or six claimed pregnancies, none of which were medically documented and none of which resulted in a baby. Other than the false pregnancy prior to kidnapping Delimar, Carolyn claimed to be pregnant in 2000, even taking maternity leave from her job. When she came back to work, she said the baby was stillborn, 
even bringing in pictures her coworkers found disturbing. And she said she had the baby's ashes in her trunk. Then in 2003, Carolyn was having her kitchen remodeled, and she told the contractor that she had just lost a pregnancy, a pregnancy that didn't exist. The contractor was sympathetic, but then Carolyn didn't pay the second half of the agreed-upon price. Both of these situations are mentioned in a Philadelphia Inquirer article, but there is no analysis given, which is something I very much want. I'm not an expert. I've made that clear in this episode and every other episode. But it seems to me that Carolyn got something out of both of these false pregnancies. She got time off of work with one of them, and then sympathy in another, which may have helped delay paying a bill she couldn't afford. So were these really false pregnancies, or did they serve another purpose? Three psychologists did interview Carolyn, and one of them believed she was suffering from pseudosciasis. But I don't know how this would apply to believing Delimar was really her daughter, unless she took the baby and, over the years, convinced herself of it as an extension of this mental illness. But we have two things she did that make it sound like Carolyn did not think Delimar was her daughter. She gave the police the wrong photograph, and she attempted to interfere with the DNA test. If she truly believed this little girl was hers, why would she do that? In the end, the defense ended up pivoting away from a psychiatric defense. They started arguing in pretrial hearings that the statute of limitations had expired because even if Carolyn took the baby, Luz and Pedro knew where she was and could see her at any time. In fact, Pedro did see her, according to Carolyn, several times. The defense then said that Pedro and Carolyn were even having an affair at the time. Remember, they're just related by marriage, not blood. But Pedro denied this. This idea that Pedro and Luz knew where Delimar was is legally very important. If Carolyn took Delimar and held her without permission and without the knowledge of her parents, it's a continuing crime, and the statute of limitations on the kidnapping would not have run out. But if they knew where she was and opted not to take her back, even if Carolyn initially took the baby without permission, the statute of limitations would have expired at five years. But why would Luce suddenly, after six years, want her daughter back if she willingly let Carolyn have her? The defense suggested the motive was money. Delimar had started modeling, she had that talent agent, and she had that television appearance, and that was less than a year before Luce went to the authorities. When the judge did not throw out the kidnapping charge based on statute of limitations, Carolyn said she was willing to plead to some charges. Something like custodial interference, not kidnapping, because she wanted to avoid prison. 
kidnapping would have been a minimum of 10 years behind bars. This was not going to happen. There was no way Carolyn was going to avoid prison in any sort of plea deal. Not wanting to take her chances with the jury, Carolyn's defense pivoted again, and now they're willing to talk about a plea deal, even if it would mean jail time. The arson charge was dropped because, one, statute of limitations is five years, and two, there was frankly no evidence of an arson anyway. It seems improbable that the fire just happened to occur and cover up a kidnapping, but the fire was not determined to be an intentional arson. There was no evidence of that. Of that long list of charges Carolyn initially faced that I read off earlier, she pleaded out just to three of them. In February 2005, she entered a no-contest plea to kidnapping, conspiracy, and interfering with parental custody. I know most of you listening are seasoned true crime listeners and know what a no-contest plea is, but for the noobs in the audience, I will tell you, it has the same result as a guilty plea, but it allows the defendant to say, the state has enough to convict me, but I do not concede guilt. It is not the same as an Alford plea, which with an Alford plea, you're saying, I maintain my innocence. It may sound like semantics, but there is a nuanced difference between not conceding guilt and maintaining your innocence. And in some cases, there can be a legal implication, maybe not in criminal court, but definitely if Luce and Pedro wanted to sue Carolyn civilly for damages, Carolyn admitting guilt is admissible in a civil case. It's not binding. It doesn't mean she's liable for anything, but the jury in a civil case or the judge will hear about that guilty plea. A no-contest plea does give you a little bit more protection in civil court. Okay, back on track. Back to those charges she pleaded out to. One of them was conspiracy. But you cannot have a conspiracy with only one person. That is not how conspiracies work. And we know she very likely had to have an accomplice to get Delimar out of the house undetected. A popular theory is that her accomplice was standing on the porch roof and she handed the baby to them out the window while she was upstairs looking for her purse. When the baby was safely out of the house, she started the fire somehow. This is why Carolyn could both have taken the baby while also being at the scene of the fire that night, which no one denies she was there, and a news camera crew even caught a shot of her there. So we know she was there. So who had the baby? An accomplice was never charged or officially named. The police had looked at Carolyn's teen son, who would have been 16 or so at the time, but nothing linked him to this. They also looked at someone Carolyn claimed was involved. Her step-cousin, Pedro. In this story, which is, I don't know how many of Carolyn's stories we're on now, 
Carolyn did not hand the baby out the window to anyone. Pedro had walked the baby out to her car. Luz had already suspected that Pedro or other members of his family had helped Carolyn because they had to have thought it was odd Carolyn showed up with a baby at the same time Delimar died in a fire. Luz pointed out how Pedro wouldn't sign the birth certificate. She said that he didn't even want the baby. And in her view, giving Delimar to his cousin would be how he got rid of a child he didn't want. Luz was going to use this information and fight for sole custody of Delimar now that they had her back. But she eventually dropped the idea when she realized the last thing this poor child needed at this point was a custody battle. Luce knew she had to focus all of her energy on stability for her daughter. Carolyn would not tell the public what her version of this story is about how Pedro gave her the baby until she sat for an interview after her sentencing. Since that's what we all want to hear, let's go ahead and speed through the sentencing. Carolyn spoke, she expressed her love for Delimar, and she said Pedro gave her the baby. Two of the three examining psychologists agreed that Carolyn had some kind of mental illness, and her attorneys hoped the judge would take that into consideration with the sentence. Carolyn was sentenced to 30 years in jail, with the non-parole period being about nine years, which meant even if she was paroled after the minimum amount of time, this would be a very long parole period, keeping her supervised well into Delimar's adulthood. So after she was sentenced, Carolyn did this jailhouse interview with the Philadelphia Daily News and told the whole story at least this version of the whole story. I want to be clear before we get into it that Pedro has not been charged with anything, but I do have to bring it up because it isn't just armchair speculation, which you know I have a love-hate relationship with. This was a story told by Carolyn. According to her, on December 13th, two days before the fire, she spoke to Pedro on the phone. She told him that she had just lost a pregnancy, and he comforted her, telling her everything would be okay. She asked Pedro for help fixing her car, and he told her to come over the next day. On the 14th, Carolyn showed up at the house, but it was after dark, so Pedro told her to come back again on the 15th for him to do the repair. This was the first time she and Luce had ever met. In spite of what her daughter remembers, Carolyn did not have a baby with her. In this version of Carolyn's story, she had lost her pregnancy a few days before, and Delimar was in the custody of her parents, so that was just a faulty memory. Now, we know Carolyn didn't lose a pregnancy because her medical records indicate she was not pregnant. Anyway, Carolyn went back to the house on the day of the fire around 5 p.m. Pedro asked her if she could give him a ride somewhere, and she agreed. She went out to her car to wait for him, and when Pedro came out, 
he had the baby with him. He put the baby in the car seat Carolyn had installed in her car, the one she said she put there in preparation for the birth of her own baby. This is when Carolyn claims Luce was aware of what was happening because she was standing in the front doorway of the house, watching Pedro put the baby in the car. So Carolyn was saying not only did Pedro give her the baby, but it was with Luce's knowledge. She didn't know why the baby was put in her car, she didn't ask, and Pedro didn't say. Then there is this confusing part of her story where there's some strange woman who came up to the car, she yelled at Pedro, and then Pedro had Carolyn give the woman a ride for some reason. After dropping the woman off, Pedro and Carolyn showed up at Pedro's friend or cousin's house. That's when Carolyn realized she forgot her purse. Pedro got out of the car, but Carolyn turned around to drive back to the house for her bag, with Delimar still strapped into the car seat. She left the baby in the car when she ran up to the house to get her purse. Carolyn saw Pedro's mother there and smelled smoke. Carolyn helped get the two boys out of the house and left to go get Pedro. As she did, Luce drove up to the house, saw the fire, and started yelling about her kids. So Carolyn's story was not that she and Luce were sitting on the couch when they heard a pop, but rather that Luce wasn't even home which does line up with what the neighbor said happened. According to Carolyn, Luce's story about checking the crib for the baby was a lie. For some reason, Luce knew Carolyn had the baby, yet she still tried to get into the house, causing burns to her face anyway. This is just another little gap in Carolyn's story. So Carolyn went and picked Pedro up, which was confirmed by Pedro's story. She says on the drive to the house, Pedro said the fire was his fault because he messed with some wires. She said Pedro suggested that she drop him off and then take the baby home to keep her out of the chaos. But Carolyn said she was worried about everyone, so she stopped to make sure everybody was okay first. This would mean that Delimar was in the car at this time. She said Luce was being treated for her burns, but was not upset about the baby at all because she knew the baby was safe. So Carolyn apparently remembers the opposite of everyone else who said Luce was hysterical and crying about her baby. Carolyn said after she established everyone was okay at the scene, she took Delimar back to her house like Pedro asked. Pedro and Luce knew the baby was with her, and they simply never came back to get her. So Carolyn decided to keep her and tell people that Delimar was hers, a baby she had in a home birth. That means this was not a kidnapping, it was an informal custody arrangement. This, of course, is not what her boyfriend at the time said happened, because if you remember, Andre said it was the evening of the 15th that Carolyn showed up with the baby, claiming it was their baby. And she even left the baby there so Andre could bond with her. 
if Carolyn decided to claim the baby as her own because Pedro and Luz never picked her up, she literally only waited maybe a couple of hours before telling Andre that this was their baby. That makes no sense. We're not talking days or weeks before she claimed the baby as her own and assumed Pedro and Luz had abandoned her. It was hours. That makes no sense. If you are an hour late getting home, does your babysitter take your kid? No, they do not. It probably goes without saying that Luz and Pedro have denied this entire story and the accusation that they knew where their daughter was for six years. Carolyn's story has huge plot holes, obviously. A major one is that if this was a cover-up for them giving the baby to Carolyn, why didn't Luz play her part? Why did she keep questioning if her daughter was really dead and insist she must be alive? There's no answer for that because it's clear Luz didn't know. Whatever happened here, whatever Pedro did, whatever Pedro knew, we know Luz was a mother who suffered. She wouldn't go to court to have her baby declared dead. She wanted money to hire a PI to look for her. She went to therapy three years after the fire because she couldn't move forward. She was just still in so much pain. This isn't someone who knew her daughter was being doted on in a house 30 minutes away, who she could see whenever she wanted. That is absolutely ridiculous. And for a defendant to throw a mother, a victim, under the bus like this, it's disgusting. I'm not going to speculate on Pedro's involvement. The proof we have is Carolyn's version of events. And her version already has so many inconsistencies and lies in it that who even knows if there's any truth to it? And it's not even the first version of the story she told. Around the time of sentencing, Luce did file a civil suit against the city. Pedro followed with his own suit two months later. But the court ended up merging the cases into one. And the complaint, I'll just go through it real quick, it was just basically that the firefighters and the medical examiner had a duty to consider Delimar a missing child and treat her case as such when they didn't find her remains in the fire. They were too quick to conclude that she had died without trying to exclude other possibilities like a kidnapping. And while it's true they did not look into this as a kidnapping, the lawsuit was dismissed because what they didn't do wasn't actionable in court. And after this, life moved on. Delimar adjusted to life with her family. She started using her birth name full-time, and after a resurgence of media when the Lifetime movie premiered in 2008, things quieted down. According to the Pennsylvania inmate Lookup, Carolyn was paroled in early 2013. Delimar would have been 15 years old, and Carolyn moved back to her family in New Jersey. And she probably has about another 14 years on parole. It's a pretty standard parole condition that you cannot contact your victim. So it's likely there has been no contact unless Delimar, now an adult, has decided to pursue it herself. 
I would personally love to hear Delimar's story. I'd love to know what her feelings are towards Carolyn. Does she think of her as a mother still? Does she just think of her as a kidnapper? Or does she even think about her much at all? I feel like I'm left with a lot of those questions, but it was about time, 14 months into making Crime Lines, to finally bring you a story with a more or less happy ending. Mm-hmm.